Well, it's the story of my life. That's not usually said in an upbeat way, is it? It's not like you drive downtown and it's a busy Saturday in a, in a uh, parking lot, parking spot opens up for you and you say, well, that's the story of my life, right? That's not how it goes, right? That's not why we say that. That's not the way we say it. Now there's somebody in every family who, who has, who's that person, you know, where the the parking spot opens up. In our family, that's Caroline. It's just like every time she goes somewhere. The, but for the rest of us, you know, it's usually somebody pulls into that spot right as you're coming up to it, and you say, that's a story of my life. Everybody has some broken storylines. For everyone, our stories are a bit of a, a mess, like that underside of the tapestry. We, we show the top of the tapestry, and everything looks nice and neat. But underneath, we know the tangles. We know, we know the knots. We know the unexpected twists. As we have walked through the story of the gospel over this first quarter, from Mark 1 through Mark 16, if you've gotten nothing else, it's this, that your story needs a new hero. From the word of God, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling. And astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. See if you can guess who I'm talking about. He, he descended from heaven. He brought together a band of, of young men, threatened the authorities, ended up dying for someone else so that somebody else can live, and came back to life. Can you guess who I'm talking about? Of course, I'm talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial, right? <laughs> Did you think I was talking about somebody else? Let's try another one. All right, he was, he was uh, raised by somebody who was not his biological father. 
but he became very interested in who his family of origin was when he was almost 12 years old. And then at a certain point, he too threatened the powers that be, including this arch nemesis, this, this dark force, this personified evil who underestimated what would happen if, if this hero died for his friends underestimated what the power would do with the power of that kind of love, love in action. He died improving everyone, breaking the power of evil and coming back to life. Can you guess who I'm talking about? Harry, Harry somebody got it, Harry Potter. Harry Potter, that's right. Why, why does the gospel show up in our stories again and again and again? I think it is that we know that we don't just need to be improved. We need new. We need new, not just improvement. We need a hero that can make things new, that no matter how much we do to make things better, no, not, no matter how much we do to be the hero of the day, the hero of our own stories, the hero of our businesses, of our families, there's always a gap. There's always something more. We need new, not just improved. Arthur Schindler, true story, book and the movie based on the life of Arthur Schindler, who operated a munitions business or factory plant during World War II. And he had two goals. One is that not a bomb or a bullet would work because he was supplying it to the Nazis, right? And second, that he would employ as many Jewish people as he could to save them from the gas chambers. There's that poignant scene at the end of the movie when he's looking at his ring a ring that they had made for him. All these Jewish people had gotten together and pulled their teeth and made, made a ring for him. And then he, he looks at his car and he's saying to himself, he's lamenting, he's saying, how many people could this ring have saved? If I had just the funds from selling that car, how many more people could I have saved? And he saw the gap opening up between the improvement he brought, the better day that he brought for these people and the abyss the abyss before him of human nature. See, recognizing that there's a myth that we were buying into at the time, that humanity was buying into, and that is the myth of progress. World War I and World War II broke down the myth of progress. We bought into it again. We believe that through technology, through engineering, we, we can have a better day by by creating it ourselves, by being our own heroes. You can see, we don't just need to be improved. Humanity, human nature doesn't need to be made better. It needs to be made new. We need someone who is a hero, who doesn't just improve us, but renews us, who takes our place. And so this morning, let's take a look at two ways that Jesus is there, not just there for us, you know, not I'm there for you, right? The cliche, I'll be there for you. I'm there for you. Jesus wasn't just there for us. He was there instead of us, instead of us. Judged instead, shamed instead, so that we may have new life and new freedom. Let's take a look. First, that Jesus was judged instead of us so that we can have a, a new future. 
so that the weight of our past will not catch up to us in the future, so that the things that, that we've done in the past that we carry with us in that backpack, you know, you just carry around those mistakes and those omissions so that you can have that weight lifted off of you so it won't come back to bite you. Take a look back at, at verses one and two, and you can see the setting of this, this scene of the tomb. Whose tomb is it? We know from, from John, from the Gospel of John, that the tomb is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is beginning, I think, beginning to make a connection. He's connecting the dots. He and Nicodemus got together to take Jesus' body before the Passover began. You know, the Passover began on Friday night, Friday evening as, as, as dusk began to fall. They could, could not have taken Jesus' body off the cross and put him into the tomb. So they had to, it was a hurry-up job. Joseph of Arimathea supplied. He was very wealthy, a very prominent citizen. He and Nicodemus came together. Nicodemus, from John chapter 3, you know, Jesus called him not just a teacher, but Israel's teacher. These are two prominent citizens connecting the dots. And I wonder, I believe that it's probably because of Passover, how close Passover was to the cross that they began to see the connection. What's Passover? And Passover is when you take a sacrificial lamb and instead of the firstborn, this is the last of 10 plagues in Egypt, instead of the firstborn of the Israelites being killed because of that last plague, they sacrificed a lamb. I wonder if Joseph of Arimathea began to make the connection. Because at the beginning of Mark, what does John say? The very beginning, right out of the chute. John the Baptist says, behold the what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only that, I, I wonder if they made the connection. You can see when you read the, the crucifixion story that at one point, someone holds up a sponge filled with wine, sour wine, holds it up to him and he drinks. He holds it up on a hyssop branch. Hyssop would have been used during the, the, the Passover meal. It would have been used. Why a hyssop branch? Hyssop would have been used to dip into the blood of the lamb and instructed in Exodus. You would take that branch, dip it in blood, and you would put it on the lintel and then on the doorposts. And I wonder if they began to make the connection between the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorposts and the cross. I wonder if they began to make the connection. I believe they did. That he was there, not for us, but instead of us, to take our, our judgment on himself, to lift the weight of our judgment off of him, that we may have a future that doesn't catch up with us, that we may have a future of freedom, free from our past. You say, well, Tim, is that, is that just for someone else to take our judgment? Is it just for somebody else to take our judgment? Well, yes, sure. Happens all the time. Uh, you, you, in uh, The Contemporary Christian by John Stott, great author. You should read everything by John Stott, by the way. 
absolute uh, leader of the church for the last century, really. In his book, The Contemporary Christian, he tells a story of a man who was one of the partners in a company, and they started uh, with a new client. And this new client wanted them to, to do something, so they, they got a, a new team together, an ad hoc team, and one of the members on that team did something that lost that client, lost the business. And she thought, well, I, I'm, of course, I'm going to get canned because I really messed up. Well, the partner took the blame. The partner saw in this person, saw, saw in this person value and worth, saw that, that, that if, if she took the blame for it, she would be done at the company. She would be done. But he could, as an owner, as, as a partner in that company, he could take the blame. Well, she was puzzled by this. She said, why did you do that? Why did you? Do? I mean, it, and it was right for him to do so. He was in charge of that group. The buck stopped with him, right? So it was just for him to take it, but it was merciful as well. Justice and mercy coming together. And she says, why did you do that for me? And he said, well, you would have done for me if you were in my position, you would have done the same thing. She said, no, I don't think I would. Tell me, why did you do that? He said, well, here's the reason. Someone did that for me. You see, he was a Christian. He understood that someone was not just there for him, but there instead of him. That he had a freedom. He had a, a new future. He had a security and confidence that allowed him to step into the same kind of pattern for her. He had something to pay ahead. You know, in, in fact, this is in our, this, this principle of, of judgment being done and passed is in our constitution. It's in the fifth amendment. It's called double jeopardy. Once someone is judged, once the judgment is passed, you can't be judged again for that. The idea of double jeopardy is that, that we have a justice system that allows us, at least ideally, to pass judgment, to say you're guilty or innocent, and if you're declared innocent, you're not gonna spend the rest of your life wondering if somebody's just gonna to try to continue to chase after you, to get you. That your past is gonna catch up with your future, that if you were, say, falsely accused, that, that someone would come and continue to try to bring you down. In this case, Jesus is judged for us, and it is for real, as you can see with the John Stott story. It is for real. And so we, we, we fuss over the idea of grace. We fuss over the idea of mercy. We have such, such grand words for it. Why don't we have the same kind of regard for judgment? Because judgment that was ours was taken away from us like that backpack of stuff you're carrying through life. The weight has been lifted so that you have new life. You say, well, trust it, trust it. Yeah, I mean, trusting is like shifting your weight from one place to another, to trust it. You trust the beam, you trust the rope. You say, well, is that that's really a big a deal? I mean, trusting that Jesus did this for me, I mean, I don't really see how this can make a real difference. So really, let's test that out. Let's imagine you have a plumber who comes to your house and fixes the sink, and on the way out the door, just, uh, just grabs a, an apple from... A, a collection of fruit there, and just you just see him out of the corner of your eye. He just grabs that apple and walks out the door. 
And he said, well, I would have given him that apple. I mean, it's not, not that valuable. I mean, it's no big deal. But then you begin to wonder, can I trust the work that he did today? Did he do that work right? Would you have that plumber back in your house again? No, the relationship is broken. The trust is broken. The relationship is broken. Let's try another one. Imagine that somebody is wanting to get to know you and um, they come in and they sit down with you and maybe you're having coffee or you're having lunch and they begin to tell you about a third person that's not there, that's a common friend and, and a juicy bit of gossip, right? And uh, they wanna tell you all about what they know that other people don't know. And the idea is that in, in talking about this other person that somehow they're going to make a connection with you, that somehow they're gonna forge some kind of relationship or special intimacy. That's false intimacy. And trust is poisoned. You see, trust is square one of a relationship. Let's take one more. Imagine that you go to a surgeon and they say, I need to do this operation on you or you will not live. But if I do perform this operation, you will live. How important is trust then? Your life depends upon the trust of the testimony of someone who knows something you don't. Someone who can do something for you that you can't do for yourself. You see, we see the principle every day. It's written into the fabric. It's written into the architecture of the universe that there is one contingent being. Our lives are dependent upon God. And Jesus' death in our place, taking our judgment, is to reestablish that relationship. So, it's a little like uh, a story I heard about a man who uh, didn't like to fly, and he was in Boston, and his, his, his son and daughter-in-law had moved to California, and they had a, a child, and he so wanted to see that child, and they kept inviting him out, kept inviting him out. He said, I'm just too afraid to fly on that plane. And he said, Dad, come on, just buck it up. You know, I'm just, get, in, get on that plane. Come on and see your grandchild. So he gets on, he gets on the plane, he flies. They're greeting him at the gate, and he, they come up, and they, they pick him up at the, at the curbside, and they say, how was the flight? He said, it was great. Everything was great. He said, well, what, what got over your nerves? He said, he, he said well, I, I never fully put my weight down on the seat. <laughs> All right? <laughs> see, trust Trust is not up, even the trust part of it isn't even fully up to us. What is your trust in? Your trust in the hero that can take your judgment, that wants to put himself in your place. So if you can trust God with your future, can you trust him with your present? And that's where we're going next because Jesus was not only judged for us, he was shamed for us. He took our shame that we may have freedom in our present, that eternity runs under our feet, that our eternal life begins today and we can live with abundance today. Look, look back at verse 7. This is to give us a new start. It's like, it, it's like shame that poisons your thoughts. Shame poisons your relationships. Shame's, shame poisons your life. And so Jesus had that shame poured out on the cross the same way 
water that's filled with impurities that could make you sick, maybe Giardia or some other kind of bug, is filtered out. The cross is that filter. The cross is the place where our shame is poured out. Look, look back at verse seven. It says, now go and tell the, dis- the disciples, his disciples, and Peter, and Peter. The, those may be the two most poignant words in the New Testament. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter, how much shame was he carrying? Denied knowing Christ, was such a, so bold as a lion, but said, I'm gonna go to death with you. And then he would not even acknowledge that he knew Jesus. What kind of shame was he carrying that day? Go tell the disciples and Peter. If anyone needed a new start, if anyone needed a new sense of a, of, of a fresh presence, if anybody needed to be set free from a lonely place of shame, <laughs> why was he telling? Why did he say, go tell the disciples and Peter? You can imagine, Peter must have been off by himself. He wasn't gathered with the others. He was hiding by himself. Isn't that what we do with our shame? We hide. You know, some of you might not come to to church or might not gather in your families or might not go to places that you normally would go because of something you've done, because because you feel a sense of shame and you've, you've come here this morning. Congratulations, this is where you belong. This is a place where we all belong. Jesus is calling us out into the light. This is where the, the cockroaches begin to scatter away. He begins to clear away those scary things about the shame that we carry with us. In the basement of our shame, he turns on the lights. You see, let me describe to you what's happening on the cross. Throughout Mark, you see this word immediately, immediately, immediately. And one of those places, one of those, many of those places where we see that word immediately come up is when Jesus is on the move. He's always on the move. It always seems like there's something he's out in front of him and there's always, he's always teetering on the edge of getting stoned by somebody, killed, pushed over a cliff taken into captivity. He's on the move. Why? Because he had set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. Why? Fleming Rutledge has written a book. It's her life's work. She's been working on it for 20 years. Uh, she's an Anglican priest, great author. She, great thinker for the church. It's called The Crucifixion. And in her book, she, she has a whole chapter on shame and how important it is that we understand that that the, the purpose of the cross was to maximize shame. That the mockery, the stripping naked, the, 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 the sense of helplessness pinned, pinned with nails to wood, the, the, the insults, the public nature of it, all of it was to maximize shame, to pour out shame. Jesus chose the cross. He chose it over so many other instances where he might have died for us. He might have died, but he wanted to make a statement. Pour out your shame here. Be done with it. Pour it out. Get rid of it. It's poisoning you. Pour it out on the cross. 
You know, you say, well, does this really work? I mean, is this, is this a thing? Is this a principle? I mean, I see the principle of trusting something like getting on the plane, but is this a principle? Well, sure. I mean, even in a funny little trivial way, you can think of how exposing something to light, exposing a little bit of shame to light actually makes it go away. Like, you know, self-deprecating humor. Like, you know, you say something like, I might say like this about my own cooking. I could burn water, right? I, I could burn water, right? Or, uh, or, 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 or another self-deprecating thing that I love. It's sort of like this. Uh, I used to be indecisive, and now I'm not so sure, right? <laughs> self-deprecating humor says, you know, I don't have it all together. I mean, I'm naked under my clothes. I mean, I'm a fragile human being. I'm, I'm going to end up... I'm mortal just like everybody else. But that's not the whole story. That's, see the principle? See what's happening? Even in self-deprecating. Let's take, a, let's take an, another more serious example here. Anna Lemke is a, is a brain scientist. And she's written a book. Some of you have probably read this book called Dopamine Nation. And in this book, she, uh, she, she talks about how the brain works and our addictions and that sort of thing. But in this book, there's, a, there's a, an incredible scene where she's talking with her daughter after watching the movie Happy Feet. Happy Feet about the penguins and uh, Mumble can't, you know, the thing about Happy Feet is that, that, that every penguin has a heart song and Mumble doesn't have a heart song, and so, but Mumble can dance, right? Mumble can dance. Well, Anna's daughter had been taking piano lessons and at her mother's behest, been taking piano lessons and she was struggling. And after that movie, she said to her mom, she looked up at her mom and she said, Mom, I'm, I'm like Mumble, aren't I? Am I like Mumble? And, you know, this is the powerful thing that, that, that struck me when, when, I, when I, was, I was watching, actually watching an interview with her about this story that she tells in the book. And she says, you know, I almost missed the moment with my daughter. I almost covered over it. I almost covered it up. I almost downplayed it. I almost lied to her. I almost deceived her into thinking, no, that's no big deal. Of course, you, you'll be fine. I mean, you know, you, 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 know, you just need more practice. You just, just need to try harder. You just need to, to, to give it more time. And she said, she, she caught herself and she said, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you are kind of like mumble. And you know what? She said her daughter, her daughter smiled at her with such a broad grin. It was like, you love me even if I can't perform the way you want me to perform. My story is bigger than my performance. Go tell the disciples and Peter that our failures are not final, that his testimony was not the end of the story. That the truth about him is bigger than his performance. Go tell the disciples and Peter. This morning, I want to ask you, what would your thought life be like if you poured your shame out on the cross where it belongs? If you added insult to injury as Jesus has invited you to? What would your relationships be like if pulling out the poison, filtering out that poison from your life 
How would you relate differently because you're relating to yourself and God differently? How would those relationships that are so locked up be different because you lost the weight of your judgment and you lost the poison of your shame? You have stared out into the abyss of human nature and said, I need a new hero, a new start, a new story. And you saw to the other side a cross over that abyss, an invitation to let him be there instead of you, not just there for you, not just warm fuzzies, not just spiritual sprinkles over, over your life on Sundays, but, but a real trusting relationship with God. And what would it be like? What would your future be like? What would your present be like without the poison of your shame? Those who are in Christ Jesus, a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we thank you that you are equal to our need. And we thank you for taking our place, for taking our judgment, for drawing down our shame. Lord, may we live with such trusting confidence that we would ourselves know that our own souls would bear witness to our future. In Jesus' name, amen.